foundational pillars of our faith is the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration. Now, what do we mean by that phrase, verbal plenary inspiration? Verbal means the very words of Scripture are inspired, not just the concepts. And plenary means all the words are inspired, not just some of them. And the term inspiration refers to the fact that the Holy Spirit of God guided the human authors to compose and record through their personalities God's truth without error in the words of the original documents. So the term verbal plenary inspiration means that all of the very words of Scripture are in Scripture because the Holy Spirit of God guided the human authors to put them there. Since the Holy Spirit of God inspired Scripture in that way, the result was exactly what He wanted, and it was perfect. That is why in theology we use words such as inerrant and infallible and authoritative. Although God the Holy Spirit used human authors, their vocabularies and their personalities, what we have before us is the very Word of God. Jesus even said in Matthew 5.18 that every jot and every tittle is important. In other words, every letter and every stroke is important. According to Galatians 3.16, even plurals are important. Noticing distinctions between plurals and singulars when you read your Bible and study your Bible. Not only that, even verb tenses are important. We see an example of that fact in the text to which we come this morning in our continuing series through the Gospel of Mark. So turn with me, please, in your Bible to the second book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark. And in our continuing series through Mark's Gospel, we come this morning to chapter 12, verses 18 to 27. So please follow along as I read these verses for us. <clears throat> Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. Then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus, and they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken or deceived? Because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore 
greatly mistaken or greatly deceived. This event that we just read took place in the last week of our Lord's life, the last few days of our Lord's life, just prior to his crucifixion. We can't say with absolute certainty which day it was, but but it was probably Tuesday or Wednesday of that final week. You will remember that the week began with the triumphal entry as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt in direct fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. The next day he went into the temple and cleansed it of the money changers who were basically stealing from the worshipers that came there. In addition, he accepted praise from the boys that had gathered there, probably for their bar mitzvah. All of this greatly infuriated the religious leaders of the day, so they looked for a way to get Jesus. They were bound and determined to get him one way or the other. One of their schemes was to trap him in his words so he would fall out of favor with the people or fall out of favor with the Roman authorities. If they could get him to fall out of favor with the people in general, that would discredit him and marginalize his influence. If they could get him to fall out of favor with the Roman authorities by saying something that the Roman authorities didn't like, he would be arrested and maybe even killed. Either way, that would accomplish what the spiritual leaders of Israel wanted, which was to get Jesus out of the way. So they confronted Jesus with accusing questions and trick questions. Go back one chapter to chapter 11. This is still all part of the same story on this final week, the final few days of our Lord's life. Chapter 11, verse 27, it says, Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Well, if we had time to read on, which we have already studied a few weeks ago, you would see that this confrontation did not go the way the religious leaders wanted it to go. So they tried another approach. Go back to chapter 12 and look at another approach. Chapter 12, verse 13, we read, Then they sent to him, to Jesus, some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. Well, this plan didn't work either. So one of the other groups among the religious leaders of Israel stepped forward with their attempt to entangle him. The chief priests have tried. The elders have tried. The Pharisees have tried. The Herodians have tried. And now it's the Sadducees' turn. That brings us to our text in verses 18 through 27. The Sadducees are going to try their hand at trapping Jesus into saying something that would either discredit him among the people or get him in trouble with the Roman authorities. Now, a little bit of background here. The Sadducees were the religious liberals in first century Israel. They did not believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in future resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. And they only accepted the first five books of Hebrew Scripture. Yet amazingly, they were the group that that was in control of the temple, if you can imagine that. 
It had become a political opportunity for them. It had become a business opportunity for them. So they definitely had a reason to want to get rid of Jesus because he kept messing with things at the temple by teaching contrary to the teachers of the day and by cleansing the temple on two different occasions. This weakened the influence among and the control over the people that the Sadducees had. So they felt like they had to try to do something to stop this man. And this is their attempt, verse 18. Then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him, and they asked him, saying. As I mentioned a moment ago, the Sadducees were the theological liberals of the day. Mark informs us of that same thing right here in this verse. He tells us that they did not believe in the resurrection. Now make sure you stay with me here so you get this point. It's key to the whole passage. The reason why they didn't believe in any kind of future resurrection is because they didn't believe in life after death. In other words, when you die, you cease to exist. That was their view. Therefore, if you cease to exist when you die, what reason is there to raise the body at any time in the future? Well, that makes sense. Their logic wasn't wrong, but their premise was. If there is no life after death, then there's no reason to raise the body from the grave at any point in the future. However, the Bible is clear from cover to cover that there is life after death. When a person dies, he doesn't cease to exist. When a person dies, he doesn't go into soul sleep. When a person dies, his inner man is separated from his lifeless body. The body is placed into a grave, but the inner person continues to exist and goes to his place of eternal destiny. This is clearly what Jesus taught on another occasion. Go to the right to the very next gospel account, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. And I'll show you just one example because it's such a definitive and powerful example. Luke 16. There are some who believe that this section is a parable. I do not believe it is a parable, but even if you take it as a parable, it doesn't change anything because... The point and meaning of the parable is the same whether you see it as a parable or not a parable. I don't believe it is for a variety of reasons, but regardless, the point is very clear. Verse 19. There was a, this is Jesus teaching. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham, had, but Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. 
Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. You see, it is clear from what Jesus taught here that when a person dies, he doesn't cease to exist. When a person dies, he doesn't go into soul sleep. When a person dies, his inner man is separated from his lifeless body. The body is placed into a grave, but the inner person continues to exist and goes to his place of eternal destiny, here described as Hades or Abraham's bosom. So all that to say this, the premise that the, Sadduce that the Sadducees had as a basis for saying that there is no resurrection was a false premise. They believed there is no future bodily resurrection because they believed there is no life after death. But there is life after death. Therefore, their entire premise was wrong. Now back to our text in Mark chapter 12. So when you read here in verse 18 that the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection, you also need to understand that it means that they did not believe in life after death. That is actually the main issue behind their trick question. Is there life after death? They are going to try to trap Jesus by painting him into a corner to make him look foolish for believing in life after death. Notice how they begin. Verse 19. Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. So they begin their diabolical plan by appealing to Scripture. They refer to Moses which was another way of referring to the law of God given through Moses. They really wanted to look good by starting their story with a reference to the word of God given through Moses. It is heinous how they attempted to hide behind Scripture for the purpose of discrediting and doing damage to the perfect Son of God. Some people have no limits or boundaries when it comes to wanting to accomplish their purposes. They are even willing to cloak their intentions behind religion, behind Scripture, behind Christianity, or behind whatever it takes to look good to others and to convince themselves that their goals are noble. That's exactly what the Sadducees did here. They found something in Scripture that they thought would help them accomplish their purposes. They brought up the issue of leveret marriage from Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10. And they refer to it here and summarize it here in verse 19. Now, although this practice seems unusual to us today, it was actually the best possible way in that culture and in that day and age to make sure that family lines were kept intact and that widows were not left to become destitute. You see, we need to be careful about judging Old Testament practices 
because it was a different time. It was a different culture. When you are outside of a culture, things may seem strange because you don't have an accurate perspective. Frankly, there are many things in our culture that we accept as Christians that that would seem very bizarre to people living in the Old Testament culture. For example, it would seem really weird to them that many men in our society who are employed work with someone else's wife, and most women in our society who are employed work with someone else's husband. You mean you go to your place of employment and you work with someone else's spouse? Do you see how that could seem extremely unusual to people in the Old Testament culture? So we need to refrain from casting our judgments on Old Testament practices. God knew what he was doing when he gave his people his law for their own good. This was one of those laws, and the Sadducees brought it up in an attempt to make their point. And notice what they do. Verse 20. They say, Now there were seven brothers... The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. Now, we don't know if this really happened or if this was a hypothetical situation. But either way, the Sadducees thought they had a scenario that would completely prove their point and completely tie Jesus in knots. Remember, their goal is to discredit him because they were furious about the influence he had with many of the people in society. Verse 21, they say, And the second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third, likewise. This is why I said that we don't know if this really happened or not, or if this was a hypothetical situation. It seems strange that seven brothers would all be married to the same woman and and that every one of them would die before the woman. It makes you wonder if their names were Henry and the next was going to be Henry VIII. But there wasn't a Henry VIII because the woman died eventually also. Verse 22, So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. The Sadducees don't seem to be presenting this story as hypothetical. They seem to be presenting it as a fact. Who knows? The story may, have, may not have been factual or hypothetical. Maybe they just lied about it. After all, they had no integrity whatsoever. So it wouldn't be surprising if they made up the story and just presented it as a fact. Whatever the case, they're now ready to push Jesus into a corner. Verse 23. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. You can almost hear them snickering under their breath. How is he going to solve this convoluted mess? That's what they were thinking. There's no way he can say anything that will, you know, resolve this riddle. They felt like this scenario proved the idiocy of believing in life after death and believing in a future resurrection. You know what they had done when you stop to think about it? They had drawn their theology from experience rather than Scripture. If they couldn't figure out how something could be true, they dismissed it as being unreasonable and illogical. Frankly, this is what a lot of people do with the Bible. 
If they can't figure out how something could be true, if it doesn't make sense to their own minds, they dismiss it as being unreasonable. This is why some people and some cults dismiss the doctrine of the Trinity. They can't figure out how God can be one and yet be three persons, so they just throw out the doctrine. Beloved, we need to be very careful not to dismiss biblical and theological truth just because we can't figure out how it works. Just because it doesn't make sense to our finite minds. Some Christians can't understand. In fact, it'd probably be safe to say none of us can understand this. But some Christians can't understand how God can choose us before the foundation of the world and how he can genuinely offer salvation to all people. Some Christians can't understand how God can allow people to spend eternity in hell and still be all loving. But just because we can't understand it doesn't mean that we have the right to discard it or throw it away. Yet that is exactly what some Christians have done. They will only accept truth if they can figure out how it all fits together logically. Now, I'm not implying that some of God's truth is illogical, but it may be illogical to us in our finite understanding. The Sadducees refused to accept the truth of life after death. They refused to accept the truth of future resurrection because it just didn't make sense to them. How, this can't happen. This is ridiculous. They were willing to limit God to what made sense to them. Thus the response of Jesus. Verse 24, Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken? Depending on your translation, you're mistaken. Deceived. Not because you do not know the Scriptures, nor the power of God. What a pointed statement. First of all, Jesus said, You are mistaken. Some translations, you are in error. You, you are deceived. Their theology was wrong. Their doctrine was wrong. And they had deceived themselves into believing it was right. The second thing Jesus said was that they didn't know the Scriptures. Even though they were very religious, and even though they were the religious leaders of Israel, they didn't know the Scripture. You see, just because someone is very religious doesn't necessarily or automatically mean that the person knows the Word of God. In fact, it's pretty safe to say that most religious groups and religious people aren't all that interested in what the Word of God has to say. They're comfortable in their religion. They're fine how they are. And I'm talking about religious groups and people within Christianity. Just because a church is a Christian church doesn't necessarily mean that the church honors and exalts and obeys the Word of God. Just because a person is religious and is involved in a church under the umbrella of Christendom doesn't mean that the person knows and follows the Word of God. You know as well as I do that the sad history of Israel, all you have to do is read your Bible, the sad history of Israel and the sad history of the church is pretty much the same in that both groups have wandered from the Word of God and substituted their own forms, their own practices, their own liturgy in place of God's Word. That's history. It's just a fact of history. That's why Jesus continually took people back to the Word of God. Throughout the Gospels, we see him saying, It 
is written? Or have you not read? He was pointing people back to the authoritative Word of God. And that's what he does here. He says, you don't know the Scriptures. And the implication of his statement is, if you did know the Scripture, you would know that your view isn't right. You would know that you are basing your view on your limited human logic and not on Scripture. That led Jesus to the third thing he said to them by way of rebuke. And that was this. He said, you don't know the power of God. If you knew the power of God, then you would not be unwilling to believe in life after death. And you would not be unwilling to believe in future resurrection. You would not be unwilling to believe that God can pull this off, even though you can't figure out how. They had formed their theological viewpoint because they just couldn't see how God could get this done. Again, again, let's not look down our noses at them and say, oh, those silly Sadducees, those foolish Sadducees. Let's look in the mirror. This is the same kind of thing people do today. They, they don't understand how God is going to be able to raise someone from the dead who was burned to death in a raging fire or someone who was lost at sea or someone who was blown up in some kind of explosion. How can God raise someone like that from the dead when there's nothing left of the body? How can he raise that body from the dead? I don't know, but I don't have to understand it to accept it. God's power God's ability isn't limited to what I can understand or what I can explain. If God says something is true, then it's true. If God says something is going to happen, it's going to happen. I think of one, one example that illustrates the point. I actually thought of many as I was working through this passage, just trying to think of parallels to us today. But I thought of one that's sort of interesting. For almost 2,000 years... People, people would read the Bible and they could not understand why God continually says, in both Old Testament and New Testament, why God continually says that he is going to do certain things with the nation of Israel in the last days. The reason why people were confused for so long, almost 2,000 years, is because after A.D. 70... After the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem and the diaspora, the dispersion, there wasn't any nation of Israel. It didn't exist. So people who read their Bibles in the 1500s and the 1600s and the 1700s or 1800s or even the early 1900s were confused by future references to Israel because there was no such thing as the nation of Israel until 1948. But listen. Just because they couldn't figure it out doesn't mean that they should have developed a theology that refused to accept what God says he's going to do with Israel in the last days. God clearly says what he's going to do. And just because we can't figure it out doesn't mean it's not going to happen. We don't have to be able to figure it out or explain what God has said to accept it. On the contrary, we should, we, should accept, we should expect that there are things in God's Word that are beyond us because they're from God. God is infinite. We are finite. 
If we could if we could perfectly understand everything in this book, perfectly describe everything in this book, explain everything in this book, then we'd really be in trouble. This wouldn't be the book of God. This is beyond us. In Isaiah 55, 9, he said, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We won't always be able to figure out how God could do everything he has said. But listen, beloved, if he has said it, it is true, and it will happen. The Sadducees refused to accept that. Because they couldn't figure out how life after death works, and because they couldn't figure out how God is going to raise people from the dead, they just refused to believe any of it. So Jesus rebuked them by saying, you're deceived. You're in error, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. He then went on to, went on to demonstrate their error. Verse 25. Jesus says, for when they rise from the dead, notice Jesus didn't back down one bit. They didn't believe in this resurrection stuff. And Jesus just says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now remember what I said earlier about this group. Jesus knew this group didn't believe in life after death. He knew they didn't believe in future resurrection. And he knew they didn't believe in angels. Yet he affirmed the reality of all three in one statement. There's a sense in which you could say he even went out of his way to point out their error. I mean, look at the text. They hadn't said anything about angels, but we do know that they didn't believe in them, but they hadn't brought that up here. Yet Jesus was the one to bring that element into the discussion. I'll tell you, those those who view Jesus as soft on religious error have a wrong view of him. Not if you read the Gospels. Not if you take seriously what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have told us about Jesus. Jesus was meek and kind and gentle and compassionate and forgiving. But when it came to religious groups that distorted or contradicted God's truth, he was unflinching. He pulled no punches. And he even went out of his way to correct them on something else that they refused to accept from God's word. He told them that when they rise from the dead, when people rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Angels are sexless beings. They are neither male nor female, and they don't procreate. So that means there are the same number of angels right now as the very moment when God created them. At the point in time when God created angels, whatever the number is, let's just take a number, 10,152,000,000, there are 10,152,000,000. They don't die, none die, they don't procreate, they don't increase in number. There are the exact same number today as when God created them. Every time they take on human form in Scripture, they appear as males. But because they are spirit beings, they do not get married. Jesus informed the Sadducees that the same thing will be true of us in heaven. We will not cease to be male and female, but we will not get married and we will not procreate. 
Now, Jesus didn't answer all our questions about heaven and the relationship of those married in this life, but he did answer this issue from the Sadducees. Then he proved his point about life after death. Verse 26, he says this, But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Oh, what an indictment Jesus begins with. Have you not read? Can you imagine Jesus saying this to the religious leaders of Israel? Haven't you read your Bible? Have you not read? In fact, they, they believed only in the first five books, and he quotes from one of those first five books, and it says this, he, is this, he, as if he is saying, you only accept five. Haven't you even read those five? He posed the same question in Matthew 12, 3, Matthew 12, 5, Matthew 19, 4, Mark 12, 10. Have you not read? In other words, don't you know what the Bible has to say about this important subject? What a rebuke this was to the Sadducees, who were the religious leaders of the day. Had they never read God's word on this issue? Had they never gone to Scripture to say, what does God have to say about this? You know, the fact is, maybe they had not. Maybe they had spent so much time reading the rabbis and reading the commentaries that they failed to read the Scripture itself. That's what many people have done down through the centuries. It's what many Jewish people especially have done and still do to this day. They read the rabbis. They read the commentaries. They don't read the Bible itself. And this is what many people have done outside of Judaism. They, they would read the priests or the fathers or the cardinals or the reverends or the popes or the supposed scholars, but they don't read Scripture itself. Jesus' words are a rebuke to us for not knowing what we ought to know from Scripture. He asks them if they have ever read the statement where God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, this statement by God occurs several times in the first five books of the Bible, the ones that they accepted, which are known as the Pentateuch. This statement occurs several times in the Pentateuch. So which one is Jesus referring to? Well, we know from the statement here about the burning bush that Jesus was specifically referring to Exodus 3, 6, where God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Jesus added his next statement. Verse 27. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly, greatly mistaken or greatly deceived. Now here's a fair question. Maybe some of you are asking it. I know I did for years when I would read this. How does this prove life after death? How does that, God saying, I am the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, how does that prove life after death? Are you ready for this? Jesus based his point. Jesus based his argument on the present tense of the verb, I am. I am. When God spoke these words in Exodus 3, 6, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had long been dead. Remember, they're in the book of Genesis. 
Genesis 12 begins the story of Abraham, and then you move on through Genesis 12 through 50 is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So now we're talking about Exodus chapter 3. We're way beyond Genesis. And yet God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had long been dead. However, God did not use a past tense verb. He did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but rather he said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God used the present tense because even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had long since died, catch this, they had not ceased to exist. Yes, they had died. They did not cease to exist. Their souls Spirits, inner person, whatever term you want to use to refer, had continued to exist because there is life after death, which is why there will be a future resurrection of the bodies to be reunited with the souls or the spirits, the inner person which continues to exist after death. Beloved, look at this. Jesus based his point. He based his whole argument on the tense of the verb. No wonder Matthew tells us at this point as he records the story, Matthew says that when they heard Jesus say this, and they got it, they got it immediately. It took me a long time to get this, reading this passage over and over for years. They got it immediately, and Matthew tells us that the the multitudes were astonished. They were just in awe. What did we just hear? This teacher based his point on the tense of the verb am. Jesus silenced his enemies, and he taught the multitudes at the same time. He silenced his enemies by telling them that their error was a refusal to know and accept what God's word says. And he taught the multitudes who heard this conversation. Remember, this takes place last few days in the temple area. Jesus has multitudes of people around him. They they flock to him in the temple area as he's teaching. And so by this encounter, Jesus taught the multitudes who were hearing this that God's word is true and God's word is authoritative. He taught them you can believe it, you can accept it when it says something, even if you can't completely understand it or put it together. God's word is true and authoritative. Do you believe that? Do you know beyond any shadow of a doubt that this book is true and trustworthy and authoritative? When it says something, it is to be accepted, it is to be embraced, it is to be believed because it's true. And one of the things it clearly says is that the only way anyone can ever be right with God and ever be accepted into heaven is by receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That is the only way. Eternal life can't be purchased. It can't be earned. It can't be merited. It can't be acquired in any way. The only way is by receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So have you? Have you done that? Have you received him as your personal Lord and Savior? I can say to you on the authority of the word of God, if you have not and if you do not, you will not be accepted by God into into heaven and eternal life. You will not. If you trust anything else, 
you will not be accepted. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head in closing here this morning, we would do well to really give thought to what we have seen this morning from God's Word and how Jesus acted and reacted and handled this situation. One thing that comes through loud and clear in this passage is that Jesus, by his own example, believed in, fully trusted in the authority, the truthfulness, the veracity of God's Word. And so if we say we believe in Jesus, then we should believe what Jesus believed. It's a contradiction when people say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I, you know, I don't know that you can accept everything in the Bible because there's so many bizarre stories in there. But I do believe in Jesus. No, that's a, that's a contradiction. Jesus believed in the Bible. He believed in the creation account. He believed in Noah. He believed in Jonah. All of these stories which the mind of modern man would say, those couldn't have happened. That's silly stuff. So if we say we believe in Jesus... We need to emulate his example and follow his example. He believed in the authority and accuracy of the Word of God. He also believed in life after death. When you die, you don't cease to exist. That's a very, very common error of our day. Soul sleep, you just kind of go into nirvana or something like that. That is not what Jesus believed. That's not what Jesus taught. It's not what Scripture teaches. When you die, you don't cease to exist, and the inner man, the inner person, goes somewhere to your eternal destiny. In the story Jesus told in Luke's gospel, bliss was described as Abraham's bosom, punishment described as Hades, a number of terms used in the Bible, but the point is, is still the same. When you die, you go somewhere. You don't go into soul sleep. You don't cease to exist. So are you ready for eternity? And the only way to be ready for eternity, according to what the New Testament teaches over and over again, the only way to be ready for eternity is to have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you're trusting in anything else or believing in anything else, you're in for a rude awakening, which is a massive understatement. So it comes down to what do you believe or whom do you believe? Do you believe the Word of God? Do you believe what Jesus said? Do you believe it in the sense that it moves you to action, to let go of whatever might hold you back, and to receive, to embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Father, as we close our time together this morning, we are always, uh, always, impressed. Uh, that's such a, a weak word. We're always amazed to view Jesus, to hear him, to watch him in action, to see how he responded, to see how he taught, to see how he used scripture, to see how he continually pointed people back to your word, to see how he handled religious error, to see how he responded and reacted to those who tried to trap him. Oh, there's so much in one little story like this that we can learn from our Lord. But we see the clear point in this particular story, which is that Scripture is true. Whatever it says, whether we can 
fully grasp it or not, Scripture is true. It is so true and so accurate that Jesus was even willing to base his argument on the tense of a verb, a verb of being nonetheless. May we have the same respect for Scripture Jesus had, the same perspective, the same attitude that Jesus had. And Father, in closing, we want to pray for anyone here in our midst and surely Surely in a crowd this size, there are some present here today who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who have never received him, who have never humbled themselves as a little child to receive Jesus Christ by faith. May your Holy Spirit draw that man, woman, young person, whoever it is, to receive Jesus Christ, to submit to him this day, for it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.